you multiply your time by giving yourself the emotional permission to spend time on things today that create more time tomorrow. Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, and that was today's guest, author and speaker, Rory Vaden. My co-host, John Ramstead, and I recently interviewed Rory about his book, Procrastinate on Purpose, Five Permissions to Multiply Your Time. Here's our conversation with Rory Vaden on Eternal Leadership. Steve, today on Eternal Leadership, we have Rory Vaden. Rory has been a best-selling author. He has an incredible story. You might have heard of his book or, or read his book, Take the Stairs. It was number yeah. one Wall Street Journal, USA Today, New York Times bestseller. And it came out of this incredible journey that uh, Rory had on this quest to be a public speaker. And mm. that didn't turn out the way that he wanted to. He wanted to be number one. And uh, that it, what happened through that, God led him in a different direction that has just created... Uh, a huge company called Southwestern Consulting. In addition to that, Rory is just sharing who he is and what he's learned with literally millions of people. Yeah. And this new book, Procrastinate on Purpose, it's called Five Permissions to Multiply Your Time. Hmm. There are so many books on this topic. And as you know, through the Coach's Corners episode that we do, a lot of the questions that we have from our listeners is how do I work in my strengths? How do I delegate? How do I mm-hmm. have balance in my life? Mm-hmm. And this is honestly the first book that I have read has a totally different approach. It's coming from a totally different perspective in a way that is useful and practical. And I'm going to give a copy of this book to every single client that I work with, Steve. Wow. And um, I'm going to recommend this to anybody listening to this. Take this one book, read this book. It'll definitely change your life. So Rory, welcome to the podcast and thank you for uh, making the time for coming on. Oh, goodness. Thank you so much for having me. And if you're giving one to every client, then let me say a prayer that your business would grow exponentially. (laughs) (laughs) Roy, that is a great prayer. I received that. Just keep keep that one up every day. (laughs) Hey, Roy, before we get started, I'd love for you to just take a, a few minutes and just give everybody a little background about yourself. Let them get to know you and then we can get into some of the just the great concepts you've put forth in this book. Mm, yeah, well, I, you know, a big part of the story that I tell is, is I was raised by a single mother who sold Mary Kay. Um, and so I grew up ar- around women who were always teaching me the principles of success from the time that I was very young. And uh, it, it also means that I know about more about makeup than I do about cars. Um, <laughs> it's a true story. And but I've, I've always been infatuated, you know, with success. And I think a lot of it came from, from just kind of being around the meetings of Mary Kay. And, um, and, you know, my mom got remarried when I was 10 years old. And then when I was in college, I had a a life altering experience. I was, I was a freshman at Denver university, DU, um, dollars unlimited as I like to call it. And (laughs) I got, I was an accounting major and, you know, I'm just this kind of nerdy kid. And, and I got recruited to work in a summer work program called Southwestern Advantage. And Southwestern has been around since 1855. And all they've done their entire 150 plus year history is work with college students. And in fact, they used to sell Bibles um, back in the 1800s and, and during the Civil War days. And that was kind of how the business started. But 
Um, I did it for five years, uh, and what we did was every summer we would we would we would go to Nashville. We would go through a week long training school they called Sales School, and then they they'd send us out to a state we had never been before. We would knock on doors to find a place to live, and once we found a place to live, then every morning we would wake up at five fifty nine a.m. take ice cold showers and go out and knock on doors 14 hours a day, six days a week, on straight commission, paying all of our own expenses, selling educational children's reference books door to door, which is, you know, that's a long way of saying I grew up to become a door-to-door salesperson. And in, and in my defense, I never wanted to go door-to-door. I was a perfectly normal child. I wanted to, <laughs> I, I wanted to sell Mary Kay. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I, the, the, the money you can make in the program is, is, is really a huge opportunity. And, uh, you know, the, the average student makes about $8,500 their first summer. The top students make as much as $100,000 a summer. And um, I made a, just about $250,000 in five summers, both selling and recruiting and leading. And that was really more leading was more my thing. And, and I would recruit and students came with me. And, and then... Um, and then after that, I, I left and started to pursue this 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 path. I thought God was leading me towards to to become a speaker, and and you know one thing to the next to the next, and here we are. Here you are. And I do have one question: Was this ice cold shower by choice? Mm-hmm. So it was it was a recommended part of the system that Southwestern Advantage promoted, and it, there was a couple things. There was there are several reasons why. So number one was it wakes you up, and we would get up at six a.m. and uh, it was pretty intense because we would knock on our last door sometime around ten p.m. the night before, and then by the time you you come home, you eat and go, you know chat with your roommates and go to bed. It, it's it's like you're pretty tired when you're doing that over and over. But um, so it wakes you up. The other reason that they did it was kind of a, a mental thing of, of saying, if if I can do this today, then I can do anything. And mm. um, the other part is that it 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 gets you out of the house quickly because you see some fast moving soap in a cold shower. Um, <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> and and so you know it, there was lots of reasons, but a lot of it was just the the mental toughness and the in the idea of. Um, and so it's, I think it's a really good, you know, kind of parallel to, you know, some of the things that it's like, and we never understood that we just did it because they said, but it's, it's like, sometimes God asks you to do things in your life and it doesn't make any sense. And it's like, why well, I don't like this and this isn't, this isn't enjoyable or this isn't fun. And, and yet it's like the big plans that he has for us are usually revealed as the result of, um, being obedient in the daily things like that. And so it was a good, just sort of a, a, a way to build character and faith and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, it's amazing how God uses everything in our lives as it comes together to what we're doing is, you know, as the seasons change and I can just see how that, developed you you know your first book take the stairs we'd I'd love to have you come back on and talk about that when the time's right but that's really all about self-discipline in a different way but you know the way you open this book uh, which is going to be huge for people uh, the first sentence just says everything you know about time management is wrong and as I read you I mean that really caught my attention as I read the book it became so clear to me that you are correct so what is the biggest myth out there as leaders executives busy people as you work with them you coach with them are right now about time management and how they're doing it today what they've been taught 
Gosh, there are so many, and we take them down one by one in the book. Uh, you know, multitasking is a myth. Balance is bogus. I mean, there's so many, but if, if I had to choose one that was the biggest, um, it would be a lesson that I learned from a two-year-old. And it was a Saturday morning, and I was with one of my business partners, Dustin, and it was our international leaders retreat. So Southwestern Consulting, our company, we do sales coaching and, and sales leadership coaching. And so we have about 100 people. Uh, we started in 2006, and now we have about 100 full-time people. And so the leaders were coming in um, on a Saturday. Anyways, it was a big deal meeting. And so I'm picking him up early in the morning, and his little two-year-old baby girl, Haven, who is just the most adorable, sweetest, little baby. I mean, she has this cute curly brown hair and these big brown eyes and a little Southern accent already developing. You know, we live in Nashville and, and she comes running down the hallway and she leaps and latches uh, like her whole body latches around his leg. And she says, daddy, where are you going? And he looks at, no, this was a Saturday morning, right? So this isn't a normal work day. Yeah, this is Saturday. You know, it's like, and it, we don't work normally on Saturdays, but it was like a big meeting and it was, you know, from scheduling, getting everybody in, um, in town, it was like, you know, it was just a Saturday meeting and, and, and he looks down at her and he says, well, you know, I, I'm sorry, baby Haven, not, you know, daddy has to go to work today. And her eyes well up with tears and she's, she's looking at him and she starts crying. And in that moment, I had there were I had two realizations. The first was that I myself am not ready to have children quite just yet. <laughs> um, but actually, the the second thing was that everything you've ever read about time management. It's about tips and tricks, tools and technology, calendars and checklists. It's about apps to help you do things faster. It's about better ways to organize how to fit more in. Everything you've read about time management is logical. And in that moment, looking at Baby Haven, it occurred to me for the first time ever that time management isn't just logical, it's emotional. And our feelings of guilt and fear and anxiety and, and frustration, uh, along with our desire to feel valued and successful and important, those things dictate how we choose to spend our time as much as what's on our calendar. And yet that human element has mm -hmm. been completely ignored in the whole, the whole world of productivity. Um, and so, you know, if I have to say there's, you know, there's two things that are different, uh, that are radically different in the procrastinate on purpose methodology. The first, the first one would be that it's the emotional side of, of productivity. And, you know, the second one would be significance, which we can, we can talk more about. Well, you know, you stated something in there that really rang true with me is that you cannot manage time. It's a completely false premise. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the whole phrase time management is just a total misnomer. You, you can't do anything to manage time. I, I can't do anything to manage time. Regardless of what I want, time ticks by, you know, one second, one second, one second. I can't start time. I can't stop it. I can't, I can't, you know, like speed it up or anything. I'll, I'll, uh, so there is no such thing as time management. There is only self-management. Um, and and once you realize that, you you start to to move from this, and this was this is a journey that I went through. And look, these are not answers that I had. These are these are problems that I struggle with, and these are these are 
things that came out of the research and the working with our clients and, um, you know, the, the statistical sampling, the profiles of the ultra performers. But, you know, what I realized is that when I think about time management, I, it puts me in this sort of victim mode of that busyness is happening to me and, and time is happening and I don't have any control. And when I move and I start to migrate over to self-management, it's, there's an empowering shift mm. that starts to happen where I realize that, you know, uh, I'm not that busy. I mean, anything that m- is happening in my life is either a commitment that was made or allowed by me. And so I stop being a victim. I stop telling people how busy, busy I am. I stop being overwhelmed by all of this that's happening to me. And I instead start to think about what is really significant and how can I use my life in a way to, to multiply time and multiply impact. You know, it's interesting because you're talking about a whole new way to look at this. Maybe to set the table, I'd love to just share your thoughts as you worked with your clients. What, you know, what are some of the traditional theories of time management, things that people are working through today? And what's the biggest difference between that and what you're teaching through this book? Yeah. So if we do a quick history on time management theory as a body of work, it really started to develop in the late 50s and 60s. And it makes sense that it was kind of on the heels of the, the manufacturing era. And era one time management thinking was all, it was very one dimensional. It was all about efficiency, right? And that's manufacturing. It's do things faster. And so there's nothing wrong with efficiency. I mean, all things being equal, efficiency is better. It's just that limit, there's a limitation to efficiency and as it relates to our time, which is that it has a point of diminishing returns because it's all, it's evidenced very well by the fact that we all carry many computers in our pockets. We have more technology. We're moving faster than ever before. And yet somehow we seem to be falling further and further behind uh, or we're at least never caught up and stress levels are climbing. So efficiency is a good thing. It's just not the strategy that's going to take you to where you really want to go. In the late 80s, a book came out that I'm sure anyone listening to this has probably heard of. It's it's Dr. Covey. The late Dr. Covey wrote a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. And, you know, the book changed the world. I'm 25 million copies sold. And and Dr. Covey basically single-handedly introduced an entire era of thinking, which we're referring to as era two thinking. And it's about prioritizing your time. And in the book, he lays out this grid called a time management matrix where the y-axis is importance and the x-axis is urgency. And it was really powerful. It was a, a big mental shift because now we went from thinking one-dimensionally to two-dimensionally, and we had this scoring system to sort of evaluate which tasks uh, you know, were most important, and then we could prioritize them. And prioritizing is also still a relevant skill. Um, you know, to prioritize means to focus first on what matters most, and that's something that leaders need to do today more than ever. But, I mean, the... For the last 25 years, we've thrown that word prioritizing around like it's the end-all, be-all, holy grail of time management. And we say, you just got to get your priorities in line. You know, you need to be a better prioritizer. And yet, there's a massive limitation that took us forever to realize, and that is there is nothing about prioritizing that creates more time. Well, you know, in the book, you talk about a concept of priority dilution, and this is when we're pulled in all these different directions. How do you address that in your life? Yeah, so, you know, on this, you know, if you look at the time management matrix, matrix, so 
so prioritizing, here's what prioritizing does. It takes item number seven on your to-do list and it helps you bump it up to number one, which is very useful, but it does nothing to help you accomplish the other items on your to-do list. And it's, there's nothing inherently about it that creates more time. So what happens is in the context of two-dimensional thinking, where we're thinking about importance and urgency, we have begun in the last 25 years to inappropriately overweight the the value of urgency because that is how we're thinking and think about how much the world has changed since 1989 when that book came out i mean there's no cell phones barely there's no internet you know there's not social media and blogs mm. and email i mean the world has changed radically and now what happens is we live in a world of urgency of constant interruption and that's what priority dilution is. Uh, and it's falling victim to whatever is latest and loudest. It, and priority dilution is the new procrastination. Because cl while classic procrastination is about consciously delaying what you know you should be doing, and it sort of affects people that might be disengaged or apathetic or they might just be lazy or whatever, priority dilution affects the chronic overachievers. And it has nothing to do with being lazy, but it is the same net result that mm. we delay on the most significant activities of the day because we allow our attention to shift uh, consciously or unconsciously to, to fires. So that is the limitation of era two thinking, and we live in a world of urgency. Well, when we were working with our coaching clients, we have about 900 active clients, um, and we're looking at the ultra performers and, you know, we're spending time in their daily lives and, and going through these problems with them. Mm -hmm. What we started to notice was an, like an evolution of thinking that took place. And it, it wasn't because they wanted to, it's because they had to. Um, the, achieving the next level of results requires the next level of thinking. And while most people live their life based primarily on the urgency calculation, ultra performers who we now call multipliers uh, uh, seem to subconsciously introduce an era of significance and significance is different um, if importance is how much does something matter and urgency is how soon does it matter significance is how long does something matter and so what happens is it completely explodes the, the, the paradigm by which we all operate. When you're making the urgency calculation, you live inside a world of 24 hours and, and you, you have limiting beliefs like there's, you know, time is the one thing we can never get more of. And we put our to-do list together by asking the question, what is, what's the most important thing I can do today? But that's not what multipliers do. Multipliers, and they don't ask, what's the most important thing I can do today? Multipliers say, how can I use my time in a way today that creates more time tomorrow? And that's what we call the significance calculation. It's getting outside of the construct of one day and instead thinking about tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so that brings us to era three, which is not managing your time with efficiency. It's not prioritizing your time. It's multiplying your time. And in one sentence, the way that you multiply time, uh, which will kind of synthesize everything we've been talking about so far. So if you've been sleeping, wake up. This is the part you, you don't <laughs> want to miss. You want to catch this. You multiply your time by giving yourself the emotional permission to spend time on things today that create more time tomorrow. Now that's powerful. Oh, go ahead, Steve. 
practically, Rory, how, what does that look like for somebody? So, yeah, so practically, so that's what the, basically the rest of the book is, you know, what we kind of talk to is like the opening psychology. And then the rest of the book is about these five permissions, these, uh, that you have to grant yourself in order to, to do that. Um, and so we created this thing called the focus funnel. Um, and the focus funnel is our attempt to create a visual depiction that codifies the unconscious thought process that multipliers are using subconsciously as they evaluate their tasks every day. Um, and basically, but it's, they're all, there are five things that you can choose to do today that create more time tomorrow. And if, you know, if you want, we could just kind of talk through them. You know, I'd love to, in, you know, to people that you've observed and worked with coaching them, seeing these ultra performers, what has been the results of this this mindset applied in their life? Well, I mean, it, it's, it's huge. It's, it's more margin. It's more peace. It's less stress. It's less worry. It's accelerated business, business growth. It's developing leaders. It's, it's exponentially increasing your financial wealth. It is accomplishing more results through more people. It's, it's reaching more customers. It's, it's truly multiplying. Um, so, but you know, the biggest thing is the sense of peace and the reduction in stress and, and a feeling of, of more stability. Like this is all going to work out because honestly, a lot of our clients and, you know, let me just say myself, when take the stairs came out, you know, we had 20 some full-time team members at Southwestern consulting. And then, you know, the book hits the bestseller list is translated into 11 languages, you know, our, and, and within three years, it's like our business explodes. We go to a hundred people and we're traveling all over the world and, and it's all, it's all blessings, but it, cr- the blessings created tremendous stress and overwhelm and feeling almost hopeless and frustrated. Like, am I ever going to get caught up? Is this ever going to get better? Is it, am I, am I, is there going to be a time in my life where I'm not working on the weekends? Like, um, and so it's a, it's a really, you know, challenging thing. And that's what, you know, the reason that we decided to really delve into this. I never thought I would write a book on productivity. In fact, I didn't want to. Um, I thought everything that was said could be said because everything you read is kind of rehashed the same old stuff. Um, but you know, so if, if I had to say in one word, you know, priority dilution is the challenge and peace is the payoff. Yeah. And another word for peace is joy. And I think so many people are just desperately desire a life that's just filled with so much more joy and the results that you're talking about, which is why I'm recommending this to all my clients. And, you know, there's an additional resource too. If people go to procrastinateonpurpose.com, your website, you have a webinar on this also. So there's a lot of resources that you're doing to free, put that yeah. out there. It's free. And now you start, let's go through this focus funnel, uh, the, uh, the five permissions, because the first one is about eliminating. And, you know, just working with my clients, there are it is really hard sometimes for people to say no, what to decide to have in their calendar or in their life. Can you expand on that? Would you, how do people think about what shouldn't be there? Yeah. I mean, eliminate is if, if you picture the focus funnel and just to describe it, since you're listening, think of a funnel and at the top in the wide end, you know, at the top is eliminate in the middle is automate at the bottom is delegate uh, those are the first three, and then we'll talk about four and five later on. But eliminate is the one 
where there is the widest swath of opportunity for margin in our life. If you, if you multiply your time by giving yourself the permission to do things today that create more time tomorrow, then eliminate is the natural and obvious and most direct way to do that. Because anytime I say no to something today, it creates time for me tomorrow because it's preventing me from doing something that I would have otherwise been doing. Now, for me, John, the thing that I've always struggled with is I have such a hard time saying no. I am such a people pleaser, and, and, I, and I, I, I'm afraid of missing out on social things or business opportunities. Uh, and sometimes I get, you know, we've even had episodes in Southwestern Consulting's history where we've chased down a rabbit tail because it was like the hot thing that everybody was doing, and we kind of veered off the core of, you know, what Jim Collins would call our hedgehog and things things like that. But in our personal life, in our email, I feel like I need to respond to everybody. I need to be available. Um, and, and so w- what happened is when I was conducting one of the profile interviews with one of the multipliers and you know, I was explaining my philosophy on this, they made it very clear. They said, well, Rory, the thing you have to realize is it's, it's completely futile to try to go through life without saying no, because you're always saying no. Anytime you say yes to one thing, you are simultaneously saying no to an infinite number of others. And that hit me in such a big way because then what it comes down to is that I'm either consciously saying no to the things that aren't significant or I end up unconsciously saying no to the things that are significant, the things that really do matter. And so um, eliminate the corresponding permission, which is the first of the five permissions, is the permission to ignore um, and and realizing that you're always saying no to something. And and and. Uh, it's also a, a strategic mindset shift. Again, everything you know about time management is wrong because everything that time management teaches us is about how to do things faster and how to fit more in and how to get more out of your day. And it's, you know, the headlines you read are five ways to get more things done or, or you know, get, get, get things done. And it's like, it's not about getting things done. It's not, a, it's not at all about getting things done. Um, a, a popular catchphrase in the productivity world is efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right things. Well, multipliers don't seem to care about either of those because it's not about getting things done at all. It's not about things. It's about results. It's about creating results. It's about creating impact. And that word isn't efficiency or effectiveness. That word is efficacy. Um, and so the mindset shift is completely, you, you know, changing my thinking from how can I get, a, get more done to realizing something that we call the sculptor's principle, which is that perfection is achieved not only when nothing more can be added, but when nothing else can be taken away. Well, you know, if we bring this a layer deeper, the significance calculation how does somebody tie in, you know, their values, their maybe their calling in life, what they're trying to accomplish, the life that they're trying to create to this whole concept of what shouldn't be there? Because it just reminds me of somebody I just had a conversation with. They're on four boards. They're active in their church. They're running a company. They have a family. Uh, they've done a very poor job of saying no. So how do they how does somebody like that think about what they should be eliminating so that what they are doing is significant? Well, again, I can I can really just speak for myself here, but here's something that I was a real painful lesson for me to learn. John was that you know this chronic overachiever, this perpetual drive, this incessant 
taskmaster-like mentality that I've always had, a lot of it is, is rooted in trying to earn the respect and appreciation of other people. And what that can be good, you know, that the drive can be good, but the motivation is actually a conflict with what God's word tells us, which is that our value doesn't come from other people. Our value simply comes from the fact that we are his and he loves us because he created us and we belong to him. And when I find my value in that, instantly I feel less pressured to go out and chase down the glorification of busy that we have in our culture. I don't feel the, I, um, my self-worth isn't about how many Twitter followers I have or how many people read my blog or listen to my podcast or buy my books or what the size of our revenue is in our company or any of those things. My, my centeredness is simply grounded in Christ and that love and and so suddenly that brings a level of clarity to me that worldly things start to fall away um and honestly even though i have now consciously made that realization for a long time i hadn't even though i've consciously made that realization i still fight it it's it's something that comes back um over and over and over again and i still have to remind myself that i need to be chasing the things that are significant and you know what is significant is as you know, First Thessalonians says that God's will for us, God's will is for us to just be grateful in every moment. You know, for us to do our work unto Him, to 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 seek Him out and make that sort of the first desire of our heart. And so, really, as believers, we should have a tremendous advantage in the professional workplace because we should already automatically be thinking more long term. We should be having an eternal perspective. You know, you talk about eternal leadership podcast we should have an incredible advantage of living significant because we should already be filtering all of our decisions, not through the world's view of urgency, but through an eternal view of significance. Well, I love what you're talking about because it's really this whole concept of identity. And what you're talking about is, is my identity and my, my values and you know what I would call priority today being driven by my desire to please things in the world or just this, this incredible, you know, person that God created with unlimited potential. And now you're talking about a way, a methodology to actually bring that practically into my life. So I love where you're going with this. So what is the next step here in the funnel is we, we've looked at eliminate, uh, and the book does a great job of how to think through this and, and find those areas in your life. So what, what would be next for somebody? So if you can't eliminate the task, then the next question is, can it be automated? And one of the, one of the, big light bulb moments for me that didn't happen until I was actually typing out the manuscript was realizing that the way that wealthy people think about money is very much the same way a multiplier thinks about time. So uh, automate is the permission to invest. And the reason we call it the permission to invest is it's the permission to invest the time and money you need to set up better systems today that will create more time tomorrow. So anything that I create a process for today saves me time tomorrow. So it's multiplying my time in the future. And yet most of us know of technologies we need to incorporate in our business. We know of systems that need to be improved. We know of processes that need to be created that would make our business better. 
and yet we don't do them because they are never urgent enough to do in the context of all the other things that come up that are urgent. And uh, just a practical example here is, you know, I, I, there's never a day in my calendar where I will have two hours free to set up online bill pay. And if I did have two hours free, I would probably be using it to relax or to catch up on something or whatever. I would never, like in the urgency calculation, it doesn't make sense to do that. But to a multiplier making the significance calculation, they think about it differently. They go, well, if setting up online bill pay is going to save me 30 minutes of paying my bills every month, then it's very much worth spending two hours today or investing two hours today to set that up because every month... Uh, you know, after four months, I will have broken even on that time. And then every month thereafter, I will be getting an exponential uh, ROTI. And this is a term we introduce in the book, ROTI, return on time invested. And so the big, uh, the big insight for me was realizing that compound, what automation is to your time exactly what compounding interest is to your money. Well, that's that's an important concept. Now, what's the difference between automation and delegation? Because I think of automation could be something like setting up online bill pay. So what's the difference between that or handing that over to, you know, creating a project for somebody in my company to do as I'm as I'm going through this funnel? Yeah, that so that's a that is an important distinction, um, and and there is admittedly a little bit of gray area between automate and delegate. But if I had to draw the line, I would basically say automate is processes, delegate is people. Um, and so you know, if you can't eliminate it or automate it, then the next question is, can this be delegated? And delegation is huge. It's, it's, it's a massive opportunity because when you learn to delegate, not only are you a multiplier, you be, you learn to become a multiplier of the multipliers. Uh, now, now you talked about before, about the, the emotion that kind of kicked off writing this book, but uh, there's a lot of emotional dynamics in delegating. Like you talked about the ROTI. I, I have to take the time to invest in maybe you to turn over a task that I think I can do quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. I can do it efficiently. I can do it better than anybody around me. Anyway, that's my view. So how do I let go of that and turn that over to create the time that I need? Yeah, so you're exactly right. This is, again, in a classic example of how time management isn't just logical, it's emotional. I mean, we all know we should delegate or we could delegate or delegating might be a good idea. The question is, how do we get ourselves to actually do it? And the two reasons, you know, if I, if you walk up to the average business leader and you say, are there things you're doing that someone else could do? I bet almost a hundred percent of them would say, well, yeah. Yeah. They well, all say they, yes. They all say yes. And you say, well, why don't you delegate it? They would say, well, I don't have either the time to train somebody or I don't, uh, they won't be able to do it as well as I can. So let's break those two objections down. Um, first of all, let's look at the time. Um, the time to train somebody because we say to ourselves, like, it's faster for me to just do this myself. And that is a limiting belief. And it's rooted in the urgency paradigm. It's, it's rooted in only thinking about today because it is true that inside of the construct of today, it likely is faster for you to do the task than for somebody else to do it. But when you make the significance calculation, you realize that over the course of time, it's, it's going to pay off. And, and to use a simple like empirical example, 
Um, there's a rule that we call the 30x rule. And this came from one of the multipliers uh, that were profiled. And the 30x rule says you should spend 30 times the amount of time training someone else to do the task as you would to as much time as it would take you to do the task once. So let's talk about a task that takes five minutes every day. The 30x rule says you should be willing to spend up to 150 minutes training somebody how to do it. Well, most people would, would say that's ludicrous. We would go, why in the world would I spend 150 minutes, two and a half hours, training someone how to do a task that I can do in five minutes? That doesn't make any sense. And the answer is, well, it only doesn't make sense in the, in the world of urgency. But when, it, you make, when you look at it in the world of significance, it makes all the sense. In fact, it's a huge opportunity for return on investment because uh, if it takes you five minutes a day to do and there's 250 working days in a year, over the course of just one year, it's going to cost you 1,250 minutes to do that task if you're the person doing it. Well, if you, instead of spending 1250 doing it yourself, you invest 150 to teach somebody else, you have a net gain of 1,100 minutes over just the course of one year. And so think about that, that's just one five-minute task I'm doing. If I, di- if I dig into my own personal calendar, I bet there's hours a week of things exactly like that uh, that I can delegate. Um, so, you know, in the time we have left, I would love for you to dive into this whole concept as we lead it here in the bottom of the funnel of procrastinating on purpose because it sounds counterintuitive to me when I first heard about the concept. Yeah, well, um, it is counterintuitive. Uh, and, and you know, at, at some level, procrastinate on purpose is a lot about what we've been talking about. It's about saying no to the things that are urgent so you can say yes to the things that are significant. So it's about procrastinating on the urgent and, and focusing on the significant. But um, there's a little, it's a little deeper. There's a little more to it than that. So yes, if, you, there is. Um, if you look at the focus funnel, if you can't eliminate, automate, or delegate a task, then it drops out the bottom of the focus funnel. At that point, you have a task that you know must be done, and it must be done by you. So there's only one remaining question, and that question is, must this task be done now, or can this task wait until later? If it must be done now, then that's not eliminate, automate, or delegate. That's what we call concentrate, and that's the permission to protect. That's the fifth permission of the book, and that's the conversation really about focus and eliminating distractions. But if the answer to the question, can this wait until later, is yes, then that is where we are encouraging people and challenging them and inviting them to not eliminate, automate, or delegate, but to procrastinate on purpose. So what you're going to do, we call it popping. You're going to pop that activity back to the top of the funnel. Now, you're not going to procrastinate on it forever. It's going to enter into a holding pattern where it cycles through the focus funnel until at one point, one of the other four things will have to happen. It will either get eliminated, automated, delegated, or it will get concentrated on because the answer to can this wait till later won't be yes, it will be no, and so it will drop down into concentrate. Um, So... But but there is a, a big difference, uh, an important distinction to make here. Because um, some people say, you know, and take the stairs, Rory, you, the whole book is about overcoming procrastination. And, and now you're talking about procrastinate on purpose. Right. And, and it's like, what's up with that? So here's the distinction. There is a massive difference in waiting to do something that you know you should be doing, but you don't feel like doing it 
versus waiting to do something because you're deciding that now is not the right time. Waiting to do something that you know you should be doing, having that difficult conversation with a loved one or, or going to the gym or making that phone call uh, that, that you don't want to make, like doing something you know you should do that you don't want to do um, or delaying on something you know you should do you don't want to do, that is, that is procrastination. That is the enemy. That is a killer of all success. That is what we talk about and take the stairs. But delaying on something because you're deciding intentionally that now is not the right time, that isn't procrastination. That is a, and that's not a killer of success. That's a virtue. And it's a virtue that we call patience. Patience is a synonym for procrastinate on purpose. It's giving yourself space to breathe, time to reflect. It's why you don't make big purchasing decisions without sleeping on it for a night. Um, and it's also why, it's why wealthy people never pay their taxes on, um, never pay their taxes early. They, <laughs> They pay their taxes on time, but wealthy people never pay their taxes early. Why? Because they know they could use their money somewhere else and get a greater return on their investment. So paying your taxes early is an underutilization of your greatest asset, which is time. So the same is true. What The multipliers, they don't make a decision that they can't unmake unless they are forced to or un- unless there's some other compelling reason why they should. Because doing something early is not the same as creating more time. It's just taking something from tomorrow and moving it into today and then adding the cost of what we call, uh, it's basically adding the cost of risk. We call it unexpected change cost. Well, you know what's jumping out at me? The, you know, the flip side of that coin, pro- procrastinating on purpose. So you're doing this intentionally. Uh, it's really versus inaction or a lack of self-discipline. So it's actually a subtle but important distinction on w- what I'm choosing or not choosing to do with what I have what, with what's going on in my life. Absolutely. And so you know, to capture it in a uh, really concise manner, inaction that results from indulgence is procrastination. But inaction that results from intention, that is patience. And when we're not driven by the frenetic need to be a taskmaster and we give ourselves time to breathe and think and reflect and sit back and focus on the significant things, it's amazing how many things that we think are urgent and we think are significant and we think we must do that if you give it a little bit of time, they end up becoming irrelevant and later you can just eliminate them. Uh, you, you figure out a process by which it can be taken care of automatically. Somebody else rises up and is able to do that. Um, and and that you never even end up doing that task because it, it, the, it never is significant enough to do right now. And so you get the confidence to do what you should have done, which was eliminate it in the first place. Immediately after listening to this interview, I was convicted and knew I needed to procrastinate on purpose in my own life. So I chatted with my pastor's son, who had just graduated from the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences in Arizona. I hired him as an intern, started training him, and thus he's taken a lot of the rough editing and audio production for the show off my plate, and it's freed up quite a bit of time for me. If you're interested in Rory's speaking or his books, just go to eternalleadership.com slash 029. That's eternalleadership.com slash 029. We'll have all that and more in our show notes, eternalleadership.com slash 029. 
If you're listening on a tablet, smartphone, or computer, you can just click on the link embedded in the information in this MP3. If you're listening on an iPhone, for example, or an iOS device, just click on the little I on the right-hand side or just click on the Eternal Leadership logo as you're listening. There you'll see that link that I always talk about as well as a summary of this episode. Special thanks to that incredible intern, Justin Jeffrey, for his editing and production help on this episode. You rock, Justin. Next time on Eternal Leadership, an interview that I am really excited about, Dr. Lance Wallnow. I was always agitated by this disconnect that the church seems to have a subculture within society that is getting further and further disconnected from the real world and that 85% of the body is out in the real world without a game plan for how do they activate their calling in a way that's congruent with the mission of the church globally. And that's what uh, what drove me, in a sense, to go put the two worlds together, the world of ministry and the world in Babylon, and say, actually, that creates a different paradigm. It's a paradigm where the sacred invades the secular and the spiritual penetrates the natural. And Christians carry within them the metamorphous potential of changing the world around them if they'll occupy the sphere that God gave them. This interview was so good and went so long, it's going to be the next two episodes. For John Ramstead, I'm Steve Ryder, and thank you for listening to Eternal Leadership. Eternal Leadership.